This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled "Drop the Story," recorded July ninth, two thousand six, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right, let's、uh, do a little meditation, as is our custom here on Sunday mornings. And the reason we do meditation, the reason that all mystics do meditation, is Very simple. The principle is very simple, and that is the truth that the mystics are trying to communicate actually cannot be transmitted in words or concepts or ideas or writings or anything like that. So, from a mystic's point of view, even the greatest writings, the world's holiest scriptures, are not the truth themselves. They point to the truth, but they do not. Contain the truth because the truth is beyond words, and so from a mystic's point of view, it's not good enough just to believe in words. In fact, if you just believe in the words, that will become an obstacle because you'll stop there and say, "Okay, well, I know the truth now. I read it in the book." From a mystic's point of view, you have to go farther, and you have to go farther, meaning go into yourself, and each individual has to discover the truth for themselves. There's just no other way to do it. So. From a mystic's point of view, the the teachings, the books, the teachers, all that—they're all aids to help us discover this truth for ourselves. Now, the reason this truth cannot be communicated in words is because it's the truth of the non-dual nature of reality. What mystics say is that if we saw things clearly, if we had insight, if we realized the truth. We would see that there is no ultimate duality, and then different mystics have different ways of putting it. So everything is God. It's a common way of putting it. The Abrahamic traditions.、Uh, everything is Buddha nature. Everything is emptiness. Everything is the Tao. There are no real separate entities. Often it's expressed as a metaphor. It's like the waves in an ocean. Yes, we can distinguish waves. There's a big wave. There's a small wave. There's a choppy wave. There's a white cap wave. But they're all made of water. There's nothing in waves except water. But you see, even to say the truth is non-dual, already、uh, we're in trouble because to say the truth is non-dual makes a distinction between non-duality and duality, and that tells us something about the nature of words and thoughts and ideas in their In their very、uh, application, they create duality. They create a distinction, and, and they're supposed to. By the way, it's not a fault of them. That's why we use them. That's why each of us has a different name, so we can distinguish each other. <laughs> As I, I like to say, you know, if we couldn't tell the difference between I and you and stuff, then when I said, "Well, I got to go to the bathroom," everybody jump up and run to the bathroom. It'd be chaos. <laughs> But what mystics say is these distinctions. Are imaginary. Literally, they are created by the mind, and then we project them onto the our universe of experience, and then we lose track of the fact that they're imaginary. And then the universe appears to us as though these distinctions were built into it, and that they were real, and that everything was separate. And once we have that experience of separation and and、uh, duality as the ultimate nature of things, well, then we have fear, and we have suffering. Because naturally, well, who am I? I'm separate from all of you, and we know everything is ephemeral, just like the waves and the ocean. And then, what happens when I go? 
that's the beginning of it, the fear of death and then everything that comes from that. So if we could see the true nature of everything, we wouldn't worry about it. I mean, one way it comes and it goes. What difference does it make, really, in the ultimate scheme of things? And also, we have an appreciation for everything. All the things we think of as bad and negative and evil, we see them as part of that overall play, as the Hindus like to say, the lila of God, the divine play. So it doesn't mean we don't play our parts. We play our parts, and we throw ourselves into the part completely, because that's all we are, is the part. But underneath, we have a deep appreciation of the whole thing, because we see the unity of it. So, this is why we do meditation practices, or sometimes they're called contemplative prayer practices, or something like that. Each tradition has different names for it, and slightly different techniques, but the principle is the same. And, and the first principle is, we need to train our attention to rest on something, instead of getting carried away in all the stories that our thoughts create. All day long, our minds go with us, and they first of all tell us what's real and what's not, and then they tell us how we should respond, and, you know, that yakety yakety yak. And we believe it. That's our problem. So, we need to somehow tear our attention away from this, uh, this soap opera that the mind is creating all day, which we are starring in, by the way. That's, that's who we are as a character in a soap opera. And as you're going to see, if you've never meditated before, when you try this, you'll see how hard that is to do, really. It's amazing how powerful those thoughts are and the stories they create are and how they suck us in. So if we pick something, and it could be a mantra, it could be a little prayer, a name or something, but what we recommend here at the center, especially if you don't belong to any particular tradition, is the breath. The breath is very convenient. Uh, you have it with you all the time, which means you can meditate all the time. Uh, you don't have to believe in anything. The breath is the breath, so you don't have to believe in Krishna. If you just wanted to say Krishna, Krishna is a mantra or something. <laughs> and you just focus your attention on your breath. And in this meditation, you don't try to control the breath. There are some meditations where you do that. But in this meditation, you just let the breath do what it wants to do. <laughs> it knows how to breathe. And we just follow it. And you follow it in some detail, like the breath is going out. And then it turns around and it comes in. It turns around, it goes out. Maybe it pauses and then comes in again, pauses. Maybe not. Maybe it's like a continuous. It doesn't matter. Whatever the breath wants to do, just let your attention ride the breath. Just like you're floating on waves, you know, and you keep contact with it, but you just, whatever it does, you go up and down, glide, and breath. And then, when you are distracted, and you will be, when you are distracted, you want to notice that. Oh, I'm thinking about my trip to Portugal this summer. I'm not watching my breath. I was planning on which airline I have to decide by Monday because there's a special, you know, uh-oh. And it's very important to notice that. Take a moment to notice how powerful that thinking mind is. And then gently but firmly you bring the attention back to the breath. Without any extra story about how, oh, what a bad meditator I am. I'm never going to get the hang of it. That's just more story. 
So just forget it. Just come back to the breath. Oh, you carried away again. You notice that. Bring the attention back. Carried away again. You notice that. Bring the attention back. It's so simple. We often complicate the practice with all sorts of ideas of what's supposed to happen and all that. Forget all that. I will tell you this, that you cannot force your attention to stay on your breath through any act of will. But if you do this over a period of time in a disciplined fashion, more and more your attention will learn to stay on the breath. And then interesting things start to happen. It's a little bit like if you want to tone up your muscles, you can't just run down to the gym one day and work real hard and expect them all to be toned up. But if you do go to the gym and work out, you know, every other day or whatever, then over time, yes, your muscles will get toned on their own. So it's very much like that. That's the way meditation works. Okay? So let us uh, begin here. First, you want to get into a comfortable position. You want to, for this meditation, keep your eyes open because ultimately you're going to create this mindfulness where your attention is free of the tyranny of thought, and then you'll be able to bring that to other aspects of your life. So a lot of things we do, we have to have our eyes open, so it's better to get used to meditating with your eyes open to begin with. But you can just let your gaze fall someplace comfortably in front of you. You're not staring at anything. You're just uh, setting your gaze so your eyes won't be looking all over the place and be distracted. The same with your hands. You can fold your hands in your lap or just rest them on your thighs, up or down, it doesn't matter. But... Wherever you find a comfortable place to put them, put them there, and then uh, don't fidget with them. And if you're going to do this practice in a disciplined way over a period of time, it's important to find a comfortable posture, an upright posture, not rigid, very relaxed, but upright so you're not falling asleep or dozing. Uh, and then always just sit in the same posture, and then it's, it's not a problem, you're not distracted by it. And then you simply place your attention, as I said, on your breath, and just follow the breath. When you're distracted, notice the distraction and bring the attention back to the breath. I ring the gong once to let us know we're beginning and twice to let us know when the meditation is over. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
before we get into the questions, did any of you meditate here this morning for the first time? Did you find that that was true, that your mind is very powerful, that it keeps... Yeah. <laughs> See, already you have an insight. The first time you sit down to meditate, you get an insight. All right, so let's open it up. Anybody have any questions about their practice, about their life, about teachings, anything you want to talk about? It's a little thing. Um, I noticed the uh, past few weeks I've been in meditation and I'm observing that my mind's going off, you know, as it always does. And I remember your, just what you said, if you... Over the years, you know, after you practice, then your mind will gradually learn to be more and more focused. And I began asking myself, where is this focus, you know, that's supposed to be coming? I've spent you know, six or seven years working at this, so on. And then I realized that the, the one is asking that question is not my true self. It's, it's Wesley, you know, it's the conditioned self, the false self, the story of I-self. And so all I had to do then was just be aware of that. This, look where this question is coming from. I think that's a useful experience. But then what's the next step after that? The next step is not to take a step. <laughs> no, don't. Okay. See, no, this Stay is the, right the, really, because that's the problem. You got it just right. Wesley, the character in the story, is waiting for something to happen to justify why I'm doing this boring thing for years and years, right? So what's in it for me? That's what Wesley's question is. So then you got the, um, the answer, I mean the meditative answer, just right. You recognize where that's coming from and you ignore that. So then if I can verbalize Wesley saying, when am I going to get some silence out of this meditation? If you don't follow it up with another thought, I've been doing this six years, and then another thought and another thought. If you just let it die, it takes you right to silence, right there, right directly there. So in meditation and in spiritual practice in general, it's an unlearning. It's not taking the next step. Sometimes we talk that way just because it's very convenient. What's the next step in meditation after concentration? Well, we do choiceless awareness and so forth. But truly speaking, what we're learning to do is stop taking these compulsive steps because the steps are always carrying us out of the present moment. And the, the reality, the truth we're trying to discover is here and now in the present moment. And every step we take is carrying us into the future, into the future, into the future, which doesn't exist. So no wonder you never get any peace and quiet or calm. That's good. Um, when the awakening happened that discontinued what you would call Joel, um, did you observe the mind arising trying to urge you to come back and proceed with stories of Joel's life? No. So it was absolute, complete severing of the connection and there could never 
there can never be the opportunity for the mind to arise and, and plant itself there again. Well, I think there's a mistake here. It's not that the mind doesn't cook up stories. The mind continues okay. to cook up stories. It's hired to cook up stories. That's what it does for a living. In your case, did yes. it continue? To, so the next day, it, it was still cooking up the stories? It, it cooks up stories, but you know. recognize their stories. There's no confusion about what the mind is doing. And there's no confusion about whether the character in these stories is you or not. You see what I mean? So it's not a question of anything changing in the sense of a something changing and the mind stops functioning or whatever. It's a question of realizing the nature of what is going on. And the closest analogy most people can relate to is what happens in a dream, the difference in a dream when you become lucid, if you ever become lucid in a dream. That in a dream, we believe that this environment we're in and the, the characters that we're interacting with and all that, we believe it's all real in, in that ultimate sense. And if we become lucid in the dream, what happens? We just realize it's a dream. We realize all these characters, environments, and everything, it's all made of consciousness, if we want to put it that way. But it doesn't mean that necessarily the dream has to change, that there's anything wrong with the dream. We are relieved of our suffering because we recognize it's just a dream. Even if you're in the middle of a nightmare, you know, one of those Jurassic Park dinosaurs after you. And you, you're terrified and you're running from it and you're looking back and you're running and then you trip and you look up and you realize it's just a dream. I don't know, you might, you know, kiss the thing. <laughs> you'd lose your fear of it now there are consequences of that I mean there's certain things then do change in life but it's not uh, it, it, this is what's so hard to describe it's this very subtle thing of dropping away of a belief really that is the fundamental change not some change in the actual content of consciousness as Dr. Wolf put it and then, yes, uh, you never experience loneliness again. What would you be lonely for? So there are certain echo emotions or forms of suffering that fall away. And you experience all your emotions differently now. You still have the emotions, but you don't experience them as problematic. So you can experience fear, but instead of experiencing fear as a form of suffering that you want to get away from, you experience it as something quite thrilling. That's why people go to see Jurassic Park. They want to experience fear. They pay money to experience fear. As long as it's not me that's being threatened. you see what I mean? But the ego mind, I mean, perhaps in, in your case, the ego mind fell out and never arose again. But in my observation, my ego mind is very, very tricky. And it masquerades. Um, I'm very suspicious of it. So I okay. notice urges arising to do this. And then I think, yeah, this is the truth calling. And then I look to see and, you know, perhaps it's really, you know, the ego mind saying, yeah, Mary Song, you know, keep this story going about you, the seeker. Right who's going to become and become and become. Right. And so 
So that's your problem. That's my problem. <laughs> no, you're in, you're in conflict with yourself. What am I not seeing? Why why is this? you're not seeing it? It's all and it's all a, a game. It's all a movie. It's all a even, even the truth calling. That's a game too. Of course, of course. <laughs> Which doesn't mean the truth doesn't call, but it's delightful. I bought this house. My wife and I bought this house basically because I had a dream. You remember all this? Are you around at the time? We were going to go to Spain. We had a little money. My, my mother had died. We had a little money. We were going to go to Spain. And I had a dream that we were going to buy a house because we were outgrowing our, our, you know, the house yes. we were renting at Fillmore Street. And, and then there's a series of events I won't go into, which were, you know, coincidental, synchronistic events that mm -hmm. brought us to this house. And, you know, it all came about. Well, uh, it was a calling in that sense. I didn't decide to buy the house. I didn't sit down and, you know, go back and forth. I just knew we had to have a house. And then we were led to this house and we got the house and all that. So you could call that a calling of truth. But it was delightful. It wasn't a problem. It was saying, wow, look how this works. Isn't this interesting? It's fascinating. You know, it's, it's always to be a child again. So if you were sitting there and not, then you started to see, well, what, what we really need now is a retreat center. And so, you know, we can do retreats and we need to get this piece of property and so on. To you, there's no doubt about that being the, that which you will follow. You're never going to suspect that it's ego mind wanting Joel to get more and more and more. No, because... <laughs> The ego mind isn't a problem when it's doing what it's supposed to do and when you know what it's doing. It go, all the time it's cooking up different scenarios about right, right. to do this, to do that, to do this. And I see that. Yeah, but that said, that's what it's hired to do. What's the problem? Well, is mine uh, more sneaky and uh, masquerading than everyone else's? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that the problem is that you do not recognize that all thought, all this planning, all of this is all the same. So you're still, some things right. you're looking at as this is true, this is false, this is, you know, uh, whatever. And so you're torn and you're confused and you're, uh, you're in conflict and you're in conflict with yourself. But the thing to do is to keep returning to that silence. Stop focusing on the thoughts and focus on the silence. All answers come out of the silence. All true answers come out of it. And you'll know what is just mine doing its number, and then something comes and, oh, okay, that's what I have to do. There's no question. There's no back and forth. There's no conflict. And that's why there's no suffering. So you've fallen into this trap of being torn by one story as opposed to another story. Uh -huh. They're all stories. That's what I'm trying to say. It's all story. You have to cut through all of that. But isn't the cosmos conspiring to move me? You see, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of teaching can be valuable at a certain stage and so but forth. But it's a story. It's a story. What mystics say is since you believe in stories, why not believe in a story that will end all the stories rather than believe in stories that just go on forever, you know? Why not believe in the story that's got a 13-week running episodes and it comes to an end rather than something that goes on for years and years, right? So we got a story that'll come to an end because the story is designed to self-destruct. Right. 
But you're at a point now where I think that even that is, you know, it's just going to be <laughs> more story. It just has to stop. You just have to come to a place where, just what I told Wesley, you're sitting there struggling and da-da-da, and is this the real calling? Instead of following up, well, well, I don't know, maybe it is. Whatever the last thought... let it go. It takes you right there. It takes you to who you truly are, that infinite ocean of consciousness. And then once you see that, it doesn't matter what arises again. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what arises again. Once you completely see it, you're never fooled again. Well, there's no you. I mean, consciousness is never fooled again, if we could put it that way. I mean, words are not going to you know, work for us at this point. But it's a question of not being fooled. It's not a question of, you know, choosing one thing or another. Once you know the magician's trick, you know, you can enjoy the, the magic show, but you know how it's done. So it doesn't make any difference whatsoever whether you choose door A or door B. <laughs> Who's, who is choosing? Who is choosing here? The, the life stream that's connected to this body. Okay, so let it choose. Why do you worry about it? Get out of the way. Because like Meister Eckhart said, let God work, let man be free. Because one door has suffering behind it. No, all the doors have suffering behind it. That's the thing. All the doors. Don't go through any door, and you'll be fine. And it's not, I shouldn't say that. It's not that one door has suffering behind it or not. Your choosing to go through one door or another will guarantee you'll have suffering whichever door you go through. But if you stop choosing to go through one door or another, then there'll be no suffering. And there'll be no conflict. See, this is the problem. Life is always carrying us through, in that sense, one door. I mean, it's not really true, but our imaginations invent other doors. We could have taken this turn. We could have taken that turn. Maybe I should have done that. And so we're always in conflict with life, you know, because we're always looking at what if all these imaginary worlds that could have been, instead of being this world that is. Truly speaking, there are no, there's no other possibility. It's just your mind's creating that, and that, that, that's fine, but you're believing it is what's not fine. Right. I have the desire for it to just, you know, snap right through and cut this... Cut this cord, right. you know. That's right. And you cannot choose to do it. But the strong desire is very important. You can think of Buddha under the Bodhi tree, you right. know. After all these extreme practices, he hadn't gotten it yet. And he just said, damn it, I'm going to sit down under this tree until I get enlightened. And I'm not going to move. And I don't mean you literally have to go find a tree to sit under. That attitude is great at that point. Mm -hmm. And then this pursue this a little bit. Do you remember the rest of the story? You probably do, because you've studied a lot of Buddhism. Maya arose. Yes, okay. So you tell. So Maya arose. So Maya's what? What is, what is Maya for people? Illusion. That... It's, it's, it's the illusion that's created that pulls you back into the story. Right. So okay, Mara right. So Mara. Mara. It's not Maya. Mara creates Maya. Or Mara's the god of delusion. Okay. So Mara sees the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, and knows if he stays there, he's going to get enlightened, right? Right. Okay, so what does Mara do? 
temptation. Yeah, how's the temptation go? What What's the temptation? The dancing girls, yeah, don't you? Myra sends his daughters. He has these very seductive, attractive daughters. They come out and they, you know, dance for the Buddha. <laughs> the Buddha will not be moved. Then what does Myra do? Offers power. Not yet. Demons. Who said that? Demons. So then he sees the the daughters aren't going to do it. So he sends his army of demon sons. They're ferocious, you know. They have. Boars, tusks, and I mean, you think that Jurassic Park monster looked horrible. These things are just terrible. And they rush at the Buddha, try to terrify him off the spot. The Buddha will not be moved. And the last one is, there are several versions of the last one. My favorite one is, Myra comes up to the Buddha and he says, you have no right to be sitting there. You've got responsibilities. You've got things to do. You know, you're the son of a king. You're a prince. You need to go home. You've got a family. You know, you have no right to be there. Who do you think you are going to get enlightened, for God's sake? And the Buddha touches the earth, bearing witness to his right to be there. Because we all have that right to be there. It's our true nature. And he won't be moved. Now, the interesting thing about this story is when it's told, most people usually imagine the Buddha as not experiencing any emotion. He's there stoically while all the stuff is going on. Or he's got a little smile or something, you know. And nothing's affecting him. This is the ego's dream. That's the ego's dream. The ego looks, oh, I'd like to be like that. No, the whole point of the story is he is experiencing all this. He's experiencing overwhelming desire. He's experiencing overwhelming fear. He's experiencing overwhelming guilt. It's just visualized for us. It's dramatized so we can see it, but it's all internal. He's experiencing all these things, this conflict. He's torn. All this is going on, but he will not be moved. Do you see what I mean? In his inner core being. So he's just like you. He's just, you know, what's going on here? But that's his secret. He will not be moved. He stays put. But then he gets up and walks away. No, 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 no. You tell me now. What happens? <laughs> what happens? The morning star. That's right. Then throughout the whole night, he has these noetic realizations, intellectual sorts of things. I mean, he sees his past lives, which is just really, he sees this whole history of all the suffering, and he realizes the cause of all the suffering is the four noble truths come to him and all that. I've forgotten exactly what. But he sees the mechanism of samsara, how it works, how it creates suffering. Because it's happening to him right there during the night. He's watching it. He's seeing in detail exactly how it works. And then there's nothing more for the intellectual mind to see. It stops. And then he sees the morning star. He didn't just get up and walk away. He's got to see the morning star. He's got to see the true nature of just ordinary stuff, phenomena. Not something, how do I know it's the call from the divine or the cosmos and this is the call from the ego. He, he looks at the pillow and, and then you look around and at everything. You see the true nature of one thing, this silly timer. You see the true nature of everything. Because it's all the same. 
So it's, it's key that he wasn't lost in some samadhi. He attained the silence. He attained the stillness. He attained all that. The mind absolutely stopped. And then he saw something nakedly, without any projection on it, without any thought, without his story, without his drama, without all that duality. He just saw. So simple. Oh, that's a big joke. Big cosmic joke all along. You know, when Andrea woke up, you know what she said to me? We were walking away from the meditation hall, you know. Were you there on that retreat? No. Oh, well, anyway, she was looking weird, so I said, come, come with me. So we started walking away, and she said, you can't get away from it, can you? Because <laughs> she'd been looking at it for years and years, looking for it. Now she can't get away from it, even if she wanted to. Never. Never. Now, I will say this. Uh, you know, it is possible people have Gnostic flashes. They... They glimpse the truth, you know, and for whatever reason, I don't claim to understand all the individual mechanisms. Yes, people can have, I think, genuine insight, and then the story sort of creeps back up on them, and they they believe it again. One of the th- problems I know is that some people have an image of what enlightenment should be like, and it's a false image. So part of the image is that you'll always be in manifest bliss. You'll always be feeling like you want to go around singing all the time. And then you won't experience any fear, physical fear I'm talking about, or desire, sexual desire, or things like that. You know. And then what happens is, usually for most people, waking up does. This bliss just uh, wipes out everything else. You can go for days, weeks, months without experiencing any other emotion, just bliss. Manifest bliss. But manifest bliss is impermanent. It's a state, like any other state. It's going to start to wear off. And you asked me earlier, was there anything just completely like that? There was one other thing about three months later when the bliss was wearing off. And I was also starting to experience, you know, other kinds of emotions. And there was a moment there where there was almost a grasping to hang on to the bliss. And it was just like a moment of suspension and... It was just seeing that let the bliss go. The bliss is not it. There's no need to hang on to bliss. And I could see that, you know, if I had hung on to the bliss, grasped on to the bliss, then I would have to start to organize my life to maintain it. But that was a crucial moment. That Could that have snagged you? And, I suppose, yes. And you back to Joel and <laughs> yes. Hollywood? And you, you, it's possible, <laughs> but you're looking over here at this window that doesn't exist. This I'm imaginary. I'm a storyteller. I mean, yes. I'm a storyteller. So, and I was a good storyteller too. Sometimes I still am. In fact, everything I say is a story. I'm a wonderful storyteller. But this is the thing. I don't experience it that way. I'm not just talking relatively here. You experienced that way. Could it have been? The only value it has to me is I look at people like you, and I think, oh, maybe that's what happened here. <laughs> they grasped onto the bliss, or they tried to uh, reject the fear or the desire of what arose because it wasn't supposed to be part of enlightenment. And then, uh-oh, this coming back. Uh-oh, I'm losing my enlightenment. Wow, you're lost right there. I'm, I'm losing my enlightenment. I mean, there's nobody... To have enlightenment, there's no enlightenment to have. You're gone. You're finished. You're already. It's too late. So this is the thing, Mary Song. You cannot think your way out of this. You cannot figure it out. 
You have to be the Buddha. You have to just bring it to a stop. Cut it off at the root. But that's something one cannot do. It's a matter of grace, isn't it? No, you can sit under the Bodhi tree, though. That means sitting in silence. Even when your own mind is in turmoil, you find that place of silence and you stay there. You don't buy into whatever is going on. Just like the Buddha didn't buy into all that he was experiencing. The, the desire, the fear, the guilt, the stories about his responsibilities, the da-da-da. He just found that place of silence, of stillness, and he stayed there. Yes? It seems like so many teachers um, talk about this vigilance, though. Like you're saying to Wesley, some kind of point where you cannot ask the next, next question, you know, where you can stay with the silence. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, I just have heard so much about this vigilance, and, and, you know, is it possible that maybe that wasn't for you? There was somehow a more severance of the cord, like you said, you know, that was just you know, so final, but maybe in other people's process, maybe it's more a thing of vigilance. Well, this is a matter, partly a matter of definition. I've come to recognize the truth of the matter is people do have Gnostic flashes, genuine glimpses of truth, not just an experience. There are lots of spiritual experiences people can have, unity experiences, all this one interconnectedness, love, and all that, but a real glimpse of the true nature of everything. And it can be lost. I mean, it is true. So I call that a Gnostic flash. Then you find this in other traditions. The Tibetans recognize this, for instance. So all the Dzogchen practices are really designed for people who have, as they put it, been introduced to the nature of mind, directly introduced. They've had that Gnostic flash. And then what are all the practices about are looking directly at whatever arises afterwards so you're not fooled by it. They even encourage you to manifest desire or fear, whatever. So if you read through Dzogchen manuals, you know, they'll say, now, son of the Buddha, you've been introduced to your true nature. Now, imagine something desirable, like a thousand yaks. <laughs> it doesn't work for me, but for a Tibetan, a thousand yaks is, you know, like, okay. Vividly imagine a thousand yaks and see the grasping. And, you know, so instead of hiding and running or thinking I've lost my enlightenment or all that, whatever comes down the pike, you look directly at. You're talking about that kind of vigilance. Uh, those are very good practices for someone who is, you know, just waking up. And I often give out advanced Dzogchen manuals to people in that situation. But there are other cases like Ramana Maharshi who just woke up. I mean, he was, you know, 17 or whatever. He just woke up and that was it, period. Yes, Phil. Uh, yes, I think it's possible to deceive yourself if you don't know what enlightenment it is and to think you're enlightened. And this is also warned about in the traditions. And one of the things I discovered as a meditator in the earlier stages, particularly, if you continue meditating, you usually uh, realize this on your own is not true. But when you try to uh, ignore the mind, as we all did this morning, uh, for a lot of people, the mind gets more creative. You know, oh, I can't suck you in with the normal chit-chat stuff. Well, I'll start coming up with really deep insights into the teachings and this and that. And uh, I'm getting brilliant. Yes. And I thought I was becoming a genius, really, for a brief period of time. (laughs) It was too long. 
So I think it's possible to then think, oh, I have become a genius, and this is what enlightenment is, and I know everything, and I think there are people out there who are genuinely deceived about themselves. They think they're enlightened. And, uh, but you cannot be deluded about true enlightenment, because there's no one there to be deluded. It's a paradox. There's no one enlightened. I mean, the truth of the matter is, no one has ever been enlightened, is ever going to get enlightened. So as long as there's someone there thinking, I am enlightened, that's actually proof, if you really think that, that you aren't. Now, people say, I am enlightened, but it's a device to attract attention, you know. And it's the lesser of two lies, because if I say, well, I'm not enlightened, that implies that there's someone there who's not enlightened, but that's not true either. Go ahead. You want to say? I was just asking if there were telltale signs of this particular form of delusion. I think if you're around a teacher, any teacher of any sort, any tradition, whatever, you have to make a judgment about what is their true agenda here. Is it me, the student, and the students, or is it them? Is there a true agenda them? That's the most general thing I can say, because teachers will have very different personalities, and some will be strong and tough love kind, and some will be, you know, like, tick not high, so, so peaceful. Yeah. So would it be like the need for recognition, either on the teacher's part or the student's part? Oh, I think that would be a good one to tell. Yes, any teacher who needed to be recognized as an enlightened teacher, uh, I would stay far away from. <laughs> or for anything that you had that you needed recognition for as a student. If I say something, I think, oh, this is, shows that I'm enlightened. I'm sorry, what? I, I'm not following that last. Oh. That's okay. What you said was perfect. <laughs> a, a teacher can sometimes, uh, oh, I just speak from my experience. You might say something, and I might recognize that, you know, that's a delusion or an obstacle or however you want to put it, and I might not address that right away because I think that's not the most uh, effective way to teach you. Right. Go look at something else that you're closer to recognizing already because my job is only to get you to, to see for yourself. Socrates described a teacher of philosophy as a midwife, that you're helping wisdom be born, but you don't do it. The person has to give birth to wisdom, but you can be a midwife and give some assistance. So I was thinking when you said midwife, and I'm thinking my daughter, who is a midwife, and she says, I'm catching babies. So you're just catching them. <laughs> well, well, yes. You catch them, but you give them right back. You know, hang on to them yourself, <laughs> which a good midwife will do, I'm sure. You ask the daughter. <laughs> Beware of the midwife who keeps the baby. That's right. Who steals the baby is exactly right. <laughs> Somebody had their hand up over here, and I'll come back to you. I just thought what she was saying was to, um, to feed her ego would be a sign that you would not be a true teacher. You mean if I was feeding her yes. ego? Oh, I see. Is that what you meant? Anyway, it's a good question, whether you meant it or not. Uh, uh, yes, that's the opposite. Some people, you know, are always tearing down their students. Some people are always feeding their students. But I said, you can't judge it on a one-shot deal, because it might look like I'm feeding your ego, and I might be trying to boost your confidence in meditation. Say, so, you know, see, you can do it. See, you didn't think you could come on retreat. You came to me and said, I don't know if I can go five days without talking to anybody. I said, sure you can. Come on retreat and see. And then afterwards, I say, see, you could do it. Now come on the 10-day retreat in the fall, you know. So 
that might look like to somebody I'm boosting your ego. What I'm trying to do is build your confidence or actually I can't build your confidence. I'm trying to get you to develop confidence, which is very different than ego. And that just comes out of your experience so that you can go further. But sometimes I may sound like I'm being rough on somebody. Say, you know, stop it. You can't figure it out, Mary Song. Quit. Stop. Cut it off. Louder. <laughs> I mean, I've been hearing it for 20 years. That's right. My God. That's right. So you have to get angry. See the way Ramana Maharshi used fear? Remember what happened to him? He thought he was facing death, and he was mm-hmm. terrified. And then he says, fear drove my mind inward. And then he thought, well, if I'm facing death, okay, so be it. I'll find out what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And he just lay down, and he went through kind of a shamanic death experience. And it was the energy of the fear that kept him focused and went completely to the end of that journey. Because most of us, you know, we call up our friends to distract us, turn on the TV, take some volume to anything. But he took the same fear that any of us would feel and he turned it into the path. He used it. He wrote it. So get angry. That's fine. The energy of that anger. 20 years and I don't know yet. God damn it, I'm going to find out. Make it into a flame of silence, of stillness. I feel like I've had some great big gulps of it. And therefore, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is. And Good. Yes, and that's what drives me. Right, so you don't have to waste any time on doubting and this is the right path and all that. You settled on it. It's not because I settled. You settled on that for yourself, so now go for it. There was one great Zen master, Hakun, I think it is. Anyway, he had a bunch of little satori's, and all the Zen masters approved his satori. They wanted to pronounce him awakened and all that, but he wasn't satisfied. He himself wasn't satisfied, and he just stuck with it, stuck with it until finally he had that breakthrough. And he said it just shattered everything, and, and now he could speak freely. He said because he spoke directly from the source; he didn't have to think about it. So you're not, you know, unusual that you're something's funny about you. I'm probably more unusual. But keep going. Keep going not with the mind. That's the trouble is get out of that head. Yeah. Because I can't not go with it. I mean, I've, I've been in this flow for a long time, and there's nothing I can really do um, except to get wrapped up in the story of, of Mary Song becoming. Yes, everything is the story. Everything is the story. There's no privileged little thought that is outside the story. Everything is the story, so, so you listen to none of it. So if I none of it. No, now you see, you're thinking still. Yes. Mm, so. <laughs> you, you, what? That's a story. We have a purpose to awaken. That's a story. It's all a story. Story. Every single thought that I See, I'm trying to be tough on her. (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) Make me. (laughs) That I can't do. That I can't do. There are limits to what a teacher can do. Yes? Do you think that uh, trying too hard can be an obstacle? Again, it depends on where someone's at, what stage, and what they're doing. Very often, trying too hard is a big obstacle to meditation. We're trying to do less and less in meditation. And so, very often, yes, the teacher recognizes, oh, no, you're trying too hard. Just relax. Let the meditation do you, is a good way to put it. I seem to have the opposite problem when I try to meditate. Following my breath, it's new to me. Very relaxed. 
mind feels clear and I start to doze. Ah, okay, very good. <laughs> so, that's well-known problem. And there are two major faults in meditation, and one is called excitement and one is called laxity. And you're experiencing laxity. And so you're not trying hard enough. It's a balance. So if you don't try hard enough, you don't put a little effort into it, then that's right. Your mind gets very lax, you kind of space out, and then eventually you fall asleep. Excitement is when you have all these thoughts going in your mind, yakety, yakety, yak, like compulsively. So if you have excitement, too much thought, our tendency is to try harder at that point, but actually the thoughts are being generated by that effort. So that's where you want to just relax a little bit. But if you're going into laxity, you need to sharpen your focus a little bit. You need to get a little bit more effort, and it's very little, just to focus the attention on the breath. And a good thing to do at that point is to say to yourself, oh, let me get very detailed about the breath. So it's not so much that you're grabbing onto the breath, but you're following very closely. Where is the breath? Well, it's just beginning to go out. Now it's just turning around. Now it's just beginning to come in again. See? So it's a little sharper focus. And then you play with this, like tuning a guitar string. If it's too loose, the note is flat. If it's too tight, it's sharp. So you have to find a place where it's just right. So you have to experiment within your meditation practice. So. If you're, if you're dozing a lot, try a little bit more effort. But then if your mind gets very excited and so forth, then back off. Play with it. And you'll discover just the right amount of effort you need for that particular situation. Okay? All right. All right. One more question here. Yes. So I'm the new, new member or new uh, visitor here. And, uh, What's your name? I'm Dave. Dave. Hi, Dave. And I was just relating what you're saying to... Uh, what I'm thinking, like my, how I'm interpreting it, and uh, it sounds a lot like uh, you're talking about believing, pursuing the nothingness of like Taoism, like the Wu Wei, and right. Would you even go so far as to say that uh, it's somewhat nihilistic that actually beliefs themselves are stories that people tell, and you don't like, my, for instance, my parents are fundamentalist Christians, and they have a literal physical reality to their belief system and there's no interpret it's not interpretive it's not a tool it's reality and i'm more agnostic and just what i maybe i'm just commenting and what how you, if you would relate that somewhat to be like tearing down the all the pillars that people you know religions themselves are stories that's right opinion. so that's right. maybe i'm just interpreting what you're saying no, no, you're, I think you're interpreting just right. It's, I would just add uh, a couple of things here. First of all, religions are all stories. So is science a story. Yeah. All our thoughts, from a mystic's point of view, are all stories in that sense. They're imaginary, literally imaginary. They're images in the mind. And so uh, some we find more useful than others for various things. So, for instance, when I have trouble with my car, when it's you know rattling or something, I take it down to the mechanic. There's a Eurasian auto place down there in Franklin. I don't take it to a shaman. <laughs> so, but that's a different story. And there are, uh, maybe shaman isn't such a good one. I don't think there are many shamans that had a lot of experience fixing cars. But my body, I take it usually, not always, to a Western doctor for particularly things like infections, which I know that they're good at fixing. 
rather than take it to a shaman. So there are two different stories. Now, to me, they're both stories. One isn't real and the other is uh, not real, but one I find more useful in my life. Then there's another quality about stories. They're beautiful if we recognize that they're stories. And we know this. We tell stories ever since, you know, we were, I don't know, in the caves. We sat around campfires and told each other stories because we love it. So there's nothing wrong with the stories, including the Christian story if we recognize their stories. And if we recognize the stories, then they aren't reality to us, and we're not trapped in one particular story. You see what I mean? And from a mystic's point of view, all these stories arise and pass, whether it's individually or whether it's collectively, you know, with a group of people or whatever, they arise and they pass away, and it all is happening in the space of quote, reality, what we call reality. But already I'm making a story up here, but my story, as you heard, is designed to self-destruct. I mean, that's our little exchange here with Mary's song, is uh, trying to see through the story. So I think the Christian myth, by the way, is, is wonderful. It is psychologically extremely powerful, the redemption, the death, and the resurrection, all this is loaded with levels of meetings and everything. And <clears throat> I just would feel sorry for someone who took it absolutely literally as though it were not a story and had only one layer of interpretation. And by the way, everybody interprets. I mean, they think they don't interpret, but, you know, Jesus said at one point, follow me. And someone said, well, I'll come follow you, but first let me go home and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. But I don't see any Christians leaving dead bodies around. No, they recognize this needs an interpretation, you know what I mean? So it's just their interpretation doesn't seem to be an interpretation to them. It seems to be the truth. But how limiting. It's like saying, you know, I went to see Star Wars. Star Wars is the only real movie, the Star Wars series. I, I don't go to see any other movies, and everybody else who goes to see the other movies are deceiving themselves, and you know what I mean? And you play Star Wars every night, over and over, you know? I, yeah. So, it's not that a Star Wars isn't a fine movie, but it's the misunderstanding of what you're experiencing, what its true nature is, and then the, uh, the narrowness of that kind of vision it traps you. That worldview becomes a trap. Yeah? I mean, this question he asked one part was about nihilism. I'm wondering if you could just briefly touch on the middle path between nihilism and eternalism. <laughs> That's a Buddhist idea here. But, yes, you did mention, I didn't address it. Yeah, what no, what did you mean? expert on what nihilism is, but the, the rejection of beliefs being that they are delusionary and that you you get into bad places when you follow, it could be religiously or politically, that if you follow ideologies that are paths that other people tell you to take, you'll end up in destruction, possibly. And that the true direction is the other way. Right. Well, okay, nihilism has a negative connotation in our society anyways, the way it's used. And it's like, well, nothing exists. It's all a dream. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, so what difference does it make? And, and mystics are often accused of that, uh, you know, especially the Eastern mystics. Well, there's a negative connotation to nihilism, but there's also the aspect that the only thing you ever do besides be is think and use words and, you know, intellectualize. So, you know, it's always a process of brain work if you're not doing the other thing. 
Okay, I think, yes, I think you're using nihilism in a slightly different way. You're not using it with a negative connotation. Okay, so in that sense, the, the path aims at arriving at a point where doing, thinking, all that ceases. Ceases, not permanently, but ceases for a moment in which the true nature of things can be seen, in which the true nature of the morning star can be seen. You can say that. All these paths aim at that point that point of silence, stillness. But that's not a permanent state to just stay in and hang out in. But that is the, the, uh, the opportunity to see the true nature of things. When the mind has stopped creating its stories, when everything has just come to a dead standstill, then it's seen, and then everything starts up again. And uh, as I said, you see the true nature of the morning star, you see the true nature of your breakfast when it arrives. I had a wonderful breakfast of uh, apple pie a la mode the next morning. Oh, it was delicious. It was great. Never, never had knew what pie a la mode was before that morning. Well, I had it many times, but I never knew what it was. It's not called mysticism for no reason. So there's a mystery and a paradox as you, if you hang around or read more of the mystics and stuff like that, in all the traditions, you run up against these paradoxes this place where words cannot go anymore. So it is a mystery. And the only thing the mystics say is, you can't crack the mystery with your thinking mind, but you can penetrate the mystery. It is possible. And we're here to testify to that fact. All right, so let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay, have some tea, check out the library. If you are new here, make sure now you, you see a librarian and sign up to become a member before you walk out with something, and they'll explain how it all works. And until we see you again, peace to you all.